Good morning. Nice to be back. We were away last weekend. We were at the 250th church anniversary of Bessels Green Baptist Church. And all the old ministers were asked to be there. Sadly, some of them couldn't make it because they were dead. Um, But those of us who were alive uh, were there. And we were visiting parents and all that sort of stuff. So it's good to be back. I want to read Psalm 50. I had a text from Andy while I was away asking if I'd preach this morning, and uh, said I'd be delighted. I'd already prepared the sermon for two weeks' time when I'm preaching at Harvest, and I was astonished how much common ground there was. So if in two weeks' time you find, myself, find me repeating myself, just pretend you didn't hear it in the first place and you'll be fine. <clears throat> Psalm 50. Let's, let's read it together. Psalm 50. Whoops. The Mighty One... The Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. But to the wicked person, God says, what right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You sit and testify against your brother and slander your own mother's son. When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. But now I arraign you and set my accusations before you. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. Those who sacrifice thank offerings honor me, and to the blameless I will show my salvation. I had an interesting example, excuse me, of grace the other day. Well, a little bit of grace. Uh, Betty and I are going on holiday next month to Spain, Almeria, with Jet 2 holidays. If this sounds a bit like an advertisement, it probably is, but I'm not getting paid for it, so it's all right. Um, And a a phone call, the phone rang last week. I'd like to speak to Mr. Woodward. Uh, You know, you've got this holiday booked. Yes, yes. Well, the hotel we booked you into is closing three days after you get there. Oh. But we found another hotel. They said, it's about five minutes' walk from the original one. Uh, would you be prepared to consider it? 
So they agreed to send me the email link so I, I could look at it, and I would phone them with my response. I looked at it and thought, this looks good, and phoned them with my response. This very kind man said, oh, yes, yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, uh, as good a hotel as the other one, and actually we're going to give you a superior room. Don't, don't, you, don't you think I deserve it? No, nor do I. That's where the grace comes in. We're going to give you a, a superior room. Uh, the pool will be open the whole time, whereas the other one was going to close halfway through. The air conditioning will be working the whole time. The other one was going to stop halfway through. And it's just a better thing altogether. Oh, and, and by the way, because we've messed you around so much, we're going to give you £20 refund each. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Grace, we didn't deserve it. Okay, maybe it's not a good illustration, but, <laughs> but we shall enjoy the holiday. This psalm is one of the many 150 psalms that are there in the Bible for us to, to read. They come in all sorts of uh, types. Some are simply songs of praise, uh, poems have been brought together over many years to form the basis of Jewish worship. Songs of praise, some are cries of help, uh, cries out for mercy. Some seek to declare God's opinion to those who are worshipping. And, and this psalm, Psalm 50, is basically that. It's God's opinion to those who would come close. And I, I want us to see three things this morning. When I, I first looked at the passage while I was away, I thought, this just slots in amazingly. There are three aspects to this psalm. First of all, see who it is who's speaking, and it's God who's speaking. So we need to think about, a bit about the nature of God. Who is it that makes these comments? And then the two different groups of people he is speaking to. And whoever you are this morning, you'll fall into one category or the other. Let's, let's start with God, shall we? Who is it that speaks in this psalm? God is summoning his people. That's what the psalmist is saying. God is summoning his people to give account. He is described in the psalm as the mighty one, the Lord. His authority is global and not limited. He is awesome. And that awesomeness is described with reference to fire going before him and tempest surrounding him. Uh, try to get this, the, the poetic nature of this, what the psalmist is trying to convey here. This is God. This is not the one we like to create as a little a thing to have on the shelf. Not literally, of course. Well, I hope not. But, you know, on the shelf of our lives that we call on occasionally. This is the almighty creator the one who had no beginning and will have no end. I, when I was a school teacher, I used to get kids come to me and say, if God made everything, so who made God? Ha, 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 you can't answer that, can you? And uh, it was obvious that one of the fathers, usually the father, would sort of tell your RE teacher that, and he, he, can't, uh, he can't answer that one. So I'd, I'd draw a big circle on the blackboard. I had blackboards in those days with chalk. Do you remember chalk? Yeah. Big circle blackboard. I said, right, in that circle. I want you to imagine, there is nothing, nothing at all, absolutely nothing, total vacuum nothingness. How can something begin in that circle? Don't know, sir. Don't know. Well, somebody would have to put it in, they said. Okay, well, let's imagine the circle is the sum total of all that exists, so there is nothing. Who's going to put it in if there is nothing? So for something to exist, it must have always been there. Something must always have been there. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Right. Well, all Christians believe is that something is God. 
the idea of there ever being a time where there's nothing at all is a nonsense. But God is bigger than that. He's bigger than the, the mechanical machinations of our mind trying to justify why he exists at all. He is the supreme creator, the giver of life, the sustainer of life. He determines life and death. Nobody else does. Total authority over all things. Creation, we're told, declares his righteousness. And he is described as a just judge. He's not my old mate upstairs. I get... Mm. I do smile graciously. Over the years, I've smiled graciously when people say, well, I just have a, I just have a little word with my old pal upstairs and everything is all right. And I go... Oh, lovely, yeah. He is not. He's not a created being. He is eternal. He is almighty. He is pure. He is holy. He's the creator of all things. So far above your understanding and my understanding that if he hadn't chosen to reveal something of himself to us, we would not have the slightest chance of knowing anything about him at all. He is a God to be feared, the Bible tells us. We don't like that, do we? We don't like, oh, we shouldn't be afraid of God because God's loving and kind. Yes, he is. That's exactly why you should be afraid of him in the sense of being full of awe and trembling in his presence. He is not accountable to his creation. Still less is he accountable to any individual member of his creation. He is the total arbiter of what is true he defines truth in himself. He is right in all his actions, regardless of how we choose to see them. And all creation and every human being is accountable to him, including the ones who don't believe he exists. It always makes me smile when people say, oh, I don't believe in God. Firstly, I think they're going to be in for a shock one day. But the other thing is they sometimes say that as if, well, because I don't believe in God, the idea of him is irrelevant to me. Utterly crazy. Utterly crazy. God does not exist to fit our plans. But he has created us to fulfill his. There's a big difference there. I know, of course, that in Jesus we discover that he is merciful that he is full of grace and full of love. I know that in Jesus he has revealed himself to us as being our, our loving father, <clears throat> but we must never assume that his glory, authority, and sheer breathtaking vastness have been even slightly diminished by the revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. The Bible still describes God as a consuming fire not to be played games with, not to be trifled with in any way. And we had better listen. If this God, as the psalmist says, this God is calling people to, to account, come, come, because I've got things to say to you, we had better listen this morning. Well, that's God. That's the one who speaks. And in the, that few minutes of talking about him, I've only touched a little bit of it. You could fathom the things of God and talk about the things of God for eternity and you'd never explore the full richness of his nature and who he is. It is beyond the capacity of your brain or mine 
to contain him and the thoughts about him. And the sooner we put ourselves in that position of humility and him where he belongs, the sooner we'll get in tune with reality. What about his words, the people he gathers? He first of all speaks to those who, uh, who are his, the people of his covenant, the people who've uh, made a covenant by sacrifice, it says in verse, in verse 5. He summons them, listen, my people, and I will speak, I will testify against you, Israel, he says. The time of the psalm, his own people were the people of Israel. That's who he's addressing here. And uh, his city where he dwelt, according to the psalmist, was Jerusalem. All the people who were reciting this psalm or hearing it said would, would understand that. Now, we know that through the coming of Jesus, God's own people have become all those who repent of their sin and put their trust in the sacrifice of Jesus for their rescue, receiving the gift of new life, that eternal life through the Holy Spirit. So for us, alongside those ancient people, as God says, come listen, let's listen to what he has to say to us. The first thing he says is this, I'm your God. Now that suggests we'd better get rid of any others, don't you think? We underestimate greatly the call of the Christian to live in radical obedience. We are still wrapped up in the prevailing philosophy of our day, which is that somehow the world is about making me feel more comfortable and the world is about me uh, being happier. That is so far removed from Christian truth as to be a, a grotesque caricature. The world is about, the, sorry, the whole of creation is about the honor of God. And the reason we were made was, was to honor him and to bring glory to him. And any human being who isn't doing that is always going to be living out of kilter with the purpose of their existence. Hence the whole dislocation of society, of people constantly longing for something deeper and something new and something new and something new because that can only be found in God. It can't be found anywhere else. And the most barren place of all to look for that is within the confines of your own intellect. And sadly, people live a whole of their lives somehow putting God in their test tube to see whether he exists or not without realizing that in doing so, they have made themselves into a laughingstock in his sight. God says to his people, I don't need you. I know some people say, oh, well, you know, Jesus, Jesus came because God couldn't cope with the thought of heaven without us. Nonsense. God has no needs in that sense. The fact that he loves us and wants us with him is, is sheer grace on his part, not a need that needs to be fulfilled within him. I don't need you, says God. In the context of those days where animal sacrifices were required as part of the Jewish ritual, God says to them that he has no problem with their ritual observance. They've been slaughtering bulls and goats and lambs and whatever for, for ages. Fine, you've done what I said, that's, that's okay, that's okay. And the whole point of that, of course, was to realize that sin has a cost and this, the cost of sin is always life. Okay? Sin always brings death. And the imagery created there through animal sacrifice was how serious sin was, which, of course, was eventually to be fulfilled in the death of Jesus, the final sacrifice for sin. That's how serious sin really is. That the only way it could be dealt with was through the death of the Son of God. It all prepares the way. God's saying to the people, I've got no problem with the fact you're slaughtering bulls and sheep. You're doing that well on the whole. You know, you're, you're doing your stuff. Fine. But he also would say to them, 
that your ritual is not enough. You see, that ritual was for their benefit, not for God's. And he'd say the same to us. You come to church regularly? Hallelujah. I believe in coming to church regularly. When I left my last church, I said to the people there, if you ever hear that this retiring Baptist minister, because I was retiring when I said it, yeah, this retiring Baptist minister has got to the stage where he says, oh, you know, I don't think I'll go out this evening to church because, well, I'm getting up too old now and, you know, and, and uh, something good on telly anyway. And, uh, you know, old people don't do that sort of thing. You know, just rebuke me and send me out there. All right? I believe in being with the people of God. I believe in being with the family of God at almost every opportunity. I believe all that. Fine. Great. It's not enough. You seek to serve God through his church. Admirable. You see, seek to serve God in other ways. Fantastic. It's good. You take communion, the bread and the wine that we're about to share together a bit later. Seriously. Fantastic. All those things are right. But God says it's not enough. Along with the people then, the requirement for us is this. Three things. Sacrifice, thank offerings. Bring your gratitude to God in your heart, in public, and out loud. Thank you for saving me. What can I say? Be thankful even in the hardest of times, for God made you. And anything of worth that you have is purely by his mercy and grace. God, thank you. That's the first thing. Second thing he says is this. Fulfill your vows. Live as disciples. Do what you promised to do. Uh, love baptismal services in the, in the, when I used to baptize people in the churches I've been and I used to ask them, to, I used to ask them a question. Do you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And do you promise to serve him in his church for the rest of your days? I do. Therefore, on confession of your faith, we baptize you. Promises are made. When we give our life to Jesus Christ, we're saying, you are Lord. You are my Lord. That, that's what becoming a Christian is, to make Jesus Lord. When you hear people say, oh, well, you know, this particular Christian took Jesus as Savior but never made him Lord, it's nonsense. You make Jesus Lord of your life and he becomes your savior. There's no double, uh, double standard. We are called to live as disciples of Jesus with radical obedience to the word of God. Now I need to pause here because that puts every one of us a little bit under a sort of hypocrisy and, and feel, you know? I don't know about you, but I haven't lived every moment of this week in perfect obedience to the word of God in everything. Have you? Yeah. I, I haven't managed it. So I'm not talking about here some ridiculous sort of standard that some super Christians get to and the rest are nowhere, you know. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about making the pursuit of God and his purposes our aim and our goal so that when we fail, and we do because we're frail human beings, when we get it wrong, when we step out of line, we're quick to hear and quick to get back and quick to say, God, I am sorry. Would you please help me get this right, that our walk with God is keeping a very short record of any wrongs, so they're dealt with immediately. So we're on a journey which is towards God, not away from him. That's what being a radical disciple of Jesus is about, learning on the ground, day by day, how to get better 
at being obedient disciples. If you think I'm exaggerating this obedience thing, Jesus said in that great sort of splurge in John's gospel before his death, a number of things he said to his disciples, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Not if you obey my commands, you'll be loving me. It's the way around. If you really love me, you'll obey my commands. In John 14, 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and will come to him and we'll make a home with him. Verse 24, he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Obedience is the very heart of discipleship. And there's a third thing that God would say to us who would claim to be his followers. Besides making a thank offering, the sacrifice of a thank offering, and besides being obedient, besides fulfilling our vows, we are to call on him in the day of trouble. <sighs> Is there anyone in this room who's never had a day of trouble? If so, I don't believe a word you're saying. Life is full of trouble. That's not all there is. There's lots of good things as well. But there's plenty of trouble going on. In fact, Jesus said it's sufficient unto the day, really. But God should be our first call when troubles come, not our last call. Lord, deliver us from the phrase, I've tried everything else and all I can do now is pray. Firstly, prayer should have been the first thing you did in the first place, and prayer is never all you can do. Prayer is the most fantastic privilege of all. Prayer, seeking him, should be the first in every decision, in every relationship problem, in every danger, in every financial difficulty, in every illness, in every circumstance. Calling on him is the right response because we are a dependent people. If God this moment withdrew the right for me to breathe, I would stop breathing. I breathe in and out only by his permissive will. We are utterly and totally dependent on him for everything, whether you believe in him or not. So let's, let's push the boat out with a practical example. Let's go back to this illness thing. Do you remember James? Yeah, James chapter 5. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he'll be forgiven. Now, there's lots you could say about that pa passage, but one of the clear things is this. The idea is that whenever, as a believer, we are ill, we should pray. And if, obviously, if everybody who gets a slight sniffle calls the, calls the elders of the church all the time, you know, we might need an awful lot more elders. But as the thing builds up, if it's not going to pass in a couple of days, and you're thinking, whoa, 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 this is beginning to affect my life, first step, before a doctor, call the elders of the church, anoint with oil, and pray. I'm not saying we shouldn't call doctors. Please don't misunderstand me. Doctors have a big role to play. Luke himself, who wrote about the journeys of Paul, was a doctor. We're not being daft here. I'm just saying, 
this should be the first port of call. Why? Well, because there are certain promises attached to it in Scripture, but also because it is making a, a, a clear statement to God that we put him first in all our needs. Call to him. Call to him. And interestingly, if you notice, the command to call on him has a promise that he will deliver and that as a result of that deliverance, we will honor him. Okay. So we've got who it is who's speaking. And then we've got he's speaking to believers here. What he's got to say to us. What about to those who uh, would choose to stay in their wrongdoing? Those who would choose to disbelieve or, or if you like, those who would refuse to change their way of living but try and find a God aspect to kind of add-on which makes life feel a bit better. You see, there were those then who knew the right-sounding words to say, just as there are those now who know the right-sounding words to say. People who have no intention of seeking to live God's way. And God brings accusations and warns of terrible consequences. Many people today have made God in their own image. Seriously, really have. Uh, in fact, I would go as far as to say the majority of people who claim to believe in God have no real grasp of who God is in terms of what we were talking about earlier. They see God as this cozy add-on to life who helps them through and is much more than that. People have created God through their idea of him as one who has an agenda for their happiness. And it doesn't matter how you live your life, of course, because God, God's so kind, you know, he's so loving, he sent Jesus for us, and it's so wonderful. And yeah, the fact that I mess up and the fact that I can't actually, I can't actually face that bit of the Bible because I'm too weak to actually do anything about that. I know, yeah, maybe not the best, but of course God loves me, so it's okay. No, it's not. For many, God is this figure who wouldn't hurt a fly, who tolerates their self-centered abuse of others and celebrates their choice to live in ways contrary to his teaching. Oh, give me that loving Jesus, but don't give me all that stuff about how I should live, because that's up to me, it's my life. I like the security blanket of God as long as he doesn't interfere with the way I live my life. The consequences to such people, according to God in this passage, are grave. Uh, here he talks about, consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces. Well, that's a nice thought, isn't it? Put that into a New Testament context. The consequences of living like that is a, a life of endless emptiness, pursuing that which is an illusion reaping in this life the consequences of sowing to a self-centered agenda. And then worse still, in the New Testament is the promise of an eternity separated from God and of endless punishment. And when people think, oh, that's more of an Old Testament concept, isn't it? No, it's not. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. And if we're going to take Jesus seriously, we ought to stop making him out to be something different to what he really was. So in conclusion, let me say, we need to have regard for just who it is that summons us. One day we'll all have to stand before him. Just who he is, who God is. And those of us who have put our trust in him and seek to follow him, we need to live thankfully, and we need to pursue obedience, and we need to learn to call on him in our times of troubles. 
And if this morning you've, you've never come to that point of turning from your own way and putting your trust in Jesus, then you need to. And actually, it's not that difficult a thing to do. I'll rephrase that. The process of doing it is not that difficult. The cost of doing it is immense. It's a very simple thing. You're walking your way, and you know it's not going anywhere. And you look at what Jesus has done, and you realize that he came because God loves you. And he bled and died on that cross because God loves you. What you do is you turn around to face him, and that's called repentance. You turn from walking your way and turn towards Jesus. Repentance. And then you see, as he bled and died there, that he was shedding his blood for you. And that actually, the sin you have committed, even though you haven't robbed a bank or murdered anybody or whatever, the sin you have committed is holding him on that cross as he bleeds and dies there. And it's out of love for you that he's offering you, offering you the free gift of total forgiveness and acceptance by God. That's on offer. But the only way you can receive it is by making sure you don't turn back to the way you were walking and come closer to Jesus and say, thank you, God. Thank you. Would you forgive me? I want to live my life for you. Would you help me? I put my trust in you with all my heart. Would you make me a child of the living God? The Bible is very clear. It says when someone does that sincerely in their hearts, God will never, ever turn them away. They become instantly a child of God and instantly forgiven and instantly have a future with him. And yes, of course, there's a future after that which tends to want us to, you know, the old sinful nature still works in some ways. We want to sometimes go back to the old ways and God will continually be, sorry, put this in the context of, I'm saying, continually slapping us around the head, wrapping our knuckles, putting things in our way to stop us going to self-destruction because he has guaranteed us that he will love us to the end now. Our trust is in him. We belong. And he's going to say to you when you begin to mess up, what are you doing that for? Come on. Come back. And as we grow to be better at this business of being disciples, we then walk with him every day of our lives. So he never leaves us and never forsakes us. In the hardest days and the hardest moments, he's there for us. And when we shed our tears and our hearts are broken, he's there for us, binding up our, our, our hearts and, and, and sharing in those tears. And when we have our greatest triumphs and great moments of exhilaration, God is there celebrating with us because he never, ever stops walking with us through the whole of our lives. That's what's on offer and if you ask me, it's better than anything else that can be found anywhere else. Oh, of course, that's the grace bit, isn't it? He doesn't just offer you a room. He offers you a superior room. Yeah? The final thing that's on offer, and cast iron guaranteed for those who turn from their own way and put their trust in Jesus with all, all their heart, is he will accept them to be with him through all eternity. And Jesus actually went to get your room ready, you know. Yeah? What do you think your room's going to be like in heaven? Ooh. There's a thought. We can only think in human terms. Uh, I'd like to think that in my room, there's a little Salvation Army flag in the corner, because I was brought up in the Salvation Army, and that matters to me. Yeah? Uh, maybe uh, one of the walls are black and white stripes. <laughs> you know? Maybe, maybe. There'd have to be some musical instruments and some music, plenty of music. In my room. We, we can only, I mean, I, 
of course we're talking symbolically, but, but we're talking about something that, that's so right. Jesus, in his great love for you, died for you as an individual. He cares about you with a passion. And he wants you to be with him through all eternity, so much so that he's tailor-made that place in eternity just for you. Wow. So if you haven't actually put your trust in Jesus, don't you think it's time? Don't you think it's time? With all your heart. No better way to live. No better way to die. No better eternal future on offer. Let me pray. Father, we have reminded ourselves this morning of the greatness of who you are, the vastness, the eternal nature of your character, the purity and holiness, the reasons why we should tremble in your presence. But we've also reminded ourselves of grace and how in Jesus we can be totally accepted and forgiven and we recognize that in him we can come in confidence. But Lord, would you help us learn? Lord, I do pray if there's anyone in this room who's really not put their trust in you, you just open their eyes, that they would take that step into life. And for those of us who have, Lord, would you help us? Would you help us be those who uh, are constantly giving thanks to you? Would you help us uh, be those who uh, really do seek to walk obediently with you? And would you help us always to make you the first port of call in our days of trouble? We bless you for your faithfulness. And we look forward to the future with you. In Jesus' name, amen.